exactly two weeks ago, a broken man with a big gun forced his way into a church and killed half of its members. While we sat here in our seats doing the same thing that we're doing today, right now, other children of God in our very state were meeting their end, meeting their maker. Though it's just one in the latest, one of the latest in the now horrifyingly regular string of tragedies, this one has driven many of us to ask questions. How do we make our church safer? How do we make sure that doesn't happen here? Where are the safeguards for our children? Where are the escape routes? I want to address these questions this morning, and the parable in our gospel helps me to do so. First off, in the interest of next week, when there will only be one service at the 1015, I will tell you that there are two exits through the sacristy. If you go through those doors, not at the narthex as you come into the church, but if you go through the doors in the back or at the front behind the altar, there are two exits back there, which you might not have known about. Secondly, since the summer, we've not been unlocking the education wing door closest to where the children stay during the 9 and 10 o'clock hours. It limits the number of entrances to the church on a Sunday morning. Of course, you can always get out that door. It's just not a path into the building. Paul Wilkes, our junior warden, and I both have keys. Third, there's to be a security seminar and information day at Prestonwood Baptist the first week of um, the next month, which is December. <laughs> and I, I am going, and so is Paul Wilkes, and a few other members of the church will be learning how to be wise about this place, about our resources, about the things that God has entrusted to us, our children, all of our members, our physical plant here, and our place in Oak Cliff. So this gospel passage this morning, it's about money, and it's about skills or talents, and it's about time, and it's about our resources. But this morning, in light of Sutherland Springs, I see what God has to teach us here about fear. A priest friend of mine texted me this story last week. I'm using exactly his words, except for the names. Super sweet old Biddy, who always sits with her husband by the west door, volunteered them to be our first line of defense in an active shooter situation. She grabbed me at the coffee hour and said, Father, John and I have had such a wonderful long life and we're not afraid to die. We want to volunteer to block, be ready to block anyone who tries to hurt any of our sweet families. All so sincerely meant, he said, it brought tears to my eyes. This witness reminds me of the moment when Jesus, sitting with his disciples by the treasury in the temple, draws their attention to a widow who has put in two tiny coins, two pennies, if you will. Jesus knows that these are all the money that she has to her name, her whole bank account, her whole retirement fund, her whole future, all that she has for getting food 
and yet she gives them to God. Even as the rich men next to her are throwing bags of money into the treasury, which are not even equivalent to 1% of their own wealth. Like the widow's might, this woman and her husband are putting all they have, their very lives and breath, into God's hands because of their great love for God and their great love for his people. Who knows how many talents a life is worth. But surely this woman took all the talents that she possesses and has cast them in at the marketplace like those first two slaves, vowing to stand up if a firing gun comes through the door. It's about as far as you can get from burying talents in in the ground. I'm not saying that we all ought to stand up to be the first to go or that we should all sell everything that we own and move our families into studio apartments. That would be easy. What I mean is it would be easy to look at someone else's call and say, oh yes, that thing, I'll do that one. The problem is that, to use the analogy from the parable this morning, that'd be like reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you did not scatter. Looking at somebody else's life, somebody else's struggles, avoids the real issue, which is to take your own talents and to take them to the marketplace to trade. Looking hard at the body and the mind and the relationships that you possess, that God has given to you, practicing how to serve others with them. We're called to overcome our fear of failure, our fear of not measuring up and to jump into the game. Do you have talents for mentoring high school kids? Who knows? Have you ever tried it? Do you have the patience of a saint to deal with preschoolers? Who knows? When was the last time you talked to one? Do you have an eye for people who are on the margins being left out? Do you have the gift of gab? Do you have a big kitchen table and a stew pot that might be aching to serve up some soup? To dig a little bit deeper into our fear and God's response, let's look at what this third slave says when the master comes back and wants to know how things have gone. The one who's buried his talent is full of excuses. Master, I knew that you were a harsh man. Really? Jesus hadn't let on that the master was cruel or unjust in any way. He actually seems to be pretty generous. When the other two show the master what they've done with the stuff that he's given them, the master is so pleased that he elevates their station, saying, enter into the joy of your master. That's like him saying, come up here, join my table with my friends and my family. You've shown that you count these talents to be as precious as if they were your own. So come be a part of this. You belong. The third goes on, accusing the master of reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. Whoa, where did that come from? The third slave has got some major beefs with the master that we've been told nothing about. 
When I encounter someone who starts throwing the kitchen sink at me or somebody else without any clear reason, I start to wonder if something more is going on in the heart of the accuser rather than the behavior of the master truly being at fault. And in the very next words, the accuser himself tells us what's going on. I was afraid, he says, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. He was afraid. I can just see this exchange unfolding. The third slave is both mad and timid, shoving the money back into the master's hands, shaking with anger and with fear. He blames the master for his own shame. The slave isn't ready to face himself, his own behavior. It's as if he's starting to realize that it's not about the master or about the money, but about how he decided to use the stuff that he'd been given. Namely, he ignored it. So there are two levels of betrayal here. First, he's squandered the gift that he'd been entrusted with, like the younger son in the prodigal parable. But unlike that younger son who realizes his wrong and humbly asks for forgiveness, this third slave is stuck in his pride and his sloth. He's more ready to shove the fault back on the person who'd given him the gift. The master then declares, as for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that does seem sort of harsh, come to think of it. Sure, he he buried his head and your money in the sand, but he gave it back to you. What's your problem, master? If we move our focus out a little bit from these 15 verses to the larger section of scripture, we see that this is near the end of the book of Matthew, chapter 25, as it says in your bulletins. There are only 28 chapters in the gospel. So Jesus's ministry is nearing its completion on earth. Jesus himself is headed toward his own end. And because he's also God, he knows exactly what that end will be. This parable, too, is near the end of a few chapters that Jesus has spent talking about the end of the world. It includes the wise and foolish bridesmaids, who we heard about last week. It includes signs of the end of the age. And then right after this passage, Jesus talks about the fate of those who fed him when he was hungry, gave him water when he was thirsty, clothed him when he was naked, and also those who ignored him in those states. In the end, then, we can understand this parable of talents to be dealing with issues on par with the end of all time and the foundation of the universe. And frankly, paychecks, cold, hard cash, do not rise to that level. God is the master. He's given each of us paychecks, literally, yes. But he's also given us friends and family, co-workers. He's given us homes. He's given us dinner times. 
He's given us wisdom from life experiences. He's given each one of us bodies and breath. God has given each one of us many talents. So the question is what we do with them. Do we sit on them, hoard them, just roll through life pretending that they don't exist for something greater? Do we hold them so closely and so dear that we must bury them under the bed mattress, make sure they never see the light of day, holding on to these little mites in fear that something might happen to them? Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, Matthew says in chapter 10. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Back to the old woman I was talking about in my friend's parish. I don't know what other gifts she has, whether she was a schoolteacher or a pianist, whether she and her husband owned several homes or whether they were poor rural farmers. But she has a body that she's willing to use, and she's not afraid to risk it all. For the sake of him who can destroy both body and soul in hell, and that is God alone, she counts it as no problem to risk her body, to risk her safety, and all that she has. Indeed, that's exactly what God in Jesus Christ did for each one of us as he hung on the cross. Jesus had never died before. This God-man, two-in-one, had never suffered death. The universe couldn't be totally sure what would happen when he breathed his last. But what was more important than his own safety, the thing that was bigger than Jesus' human fear, was God's great love. There on that cross, and even here in this parable, as Jesus knows what's coming next, he puts love ahead of fear. He puts the precious lives of his brothers and sisters, that's you and me, as more important than his own life, his own comfort, his own safety. So even as each of us struggle with fear and uncertainty, even sitting here this morning in these familiar pews, God has sat where we sit. God has sat in fear. And he has shown us how to move out of fear and into his own love, the only love that can heal this broken world. And that requires us to risk it all to take all our riches and talents and our kitchen tables and our singing voices and our prayerful knees and our patient parenting, to take all of these things to the marketplace, to offer each and every one of these gifts that we've been given up to God's glory for his service. If any want to become my followers, Jesus says, let them deny themselves and take up their cross 
and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Amen. Amen.